Hi, I'm Matt Janssen, and you're listening to the BRFCS podcast. The New York Rovers would like to welcome you to the BRFCS.com podcast, covering the 2019-2020 Blackburn Rovers Championship campaign, hosted by Ian Herbert and joined by some very special guests. Don't forget to check out the forum here at BRFCS.com to continue the discussion. Oh, well, wouldn't you know it, once again, bumped into Tony Mowbray here at, here at Rockall. Tony, how'd you take your brew, mate? Right, basic really, uh, tea, quite strong, uh, two sugars, and uh, and I always drink out of my favourite mug. Oh, which uh, w- w- which one is it? Oh yeah, it's good, and I got it from the Middlesbrough store, um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, from yeah. Oh no, 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 Tony, not the middle, the the Rovers one. Oh, this one, right? Yeah, you can get them personalised at um, at the Terrace store, and of course, and as uh, manager of Rovers, I've got. You can get them personalised with all of the different players of your choice. Oh, which you know, which which, which players would you have then? Well, you, you obviously you've got your your Lenihans, your Dax, um, you know, your Danny Grahams, you know, proper proper professional footballers. But obviously, I've chosen my favourite, Elliot Bennett. Oh, of, of, of course. Well, Joe Rothwell's one of my favourite players. Have you, any plans to get a mug for him? He'll just have to wait his turn, I think. Yeah, but you know. If you want to get one of these, get your hands on one. You just have to go to the uh, go to the terrace store and enter BRFCS at checkout. Oh well, that's that's brilliant then. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, it's fine. But remember, only Tony drinks out of the Elliot Bennett mug. You'll have to get yourselves one with I don't know Ben Brereton on it. Oh, well, okay then. Welcome back everyone to this, the latest episode in the BRFCS.com podcast. In this episode we're talking to Scott Sumner, who's celebrating the 100th edition of the 4000 Holes fanzine. And also at the end we hear from a new contributor to the podcast, John Waring, and he gives us the latest in our series of My First Rover's Memory. Hope you enjoy! It's my great pleasure to welcome as a guest on this episode the editor of 4,000 Holes. It's Scott Sumner. Scott, how are you this evening? Good evening, Ian. Good to be back. Thanks for inviting me on again. Great to have you back on. You're a stalwart of our predictions programmes, of course, and I'm sure we'll revisit those at the end of the season, see who's the prediction champion. But uh, we're here to talk tonight about uh, the impending 100th issue of 4,000 Holes and get a a little bit more information from Scott about uh, what it's been like making the magazine come back to life after so long. So, Scott, when you restarted 4,000 Holes, what were your hopes and fears, and how has it come to pass? What, what have been the, the, the great triumphs, and what have been the, the, the things that you were concerned about as you were uh, going on the journey? Yeah, so 4,000 Holes started in 1989, and it had run pretty much continuously through to about 2013, so when I contacted Dan Clough, the previous editor, in 2017 to start it up again, I suppose there was some trepidation that, is it still relevant? Are people still going to want it? 
Um, but obviously I was hopeful that it would be a success and people would enjoy it and keep reading it. But generally, I can't remember having particularly any hopes or fears in any big way because I was just caught up in the whirlwind of putting together a brand new issue and not really knowing what I was doing and you know doing the the editing and asking people to contribute sending it to the printers and promoting it and selling it so it was just to kind of at the start make it up as I go along and hope for the best and and the uptakes straight away from when I got involved was brilliant and that first issue I did issue 87 we sold about 370 something like that and sales have stayed pretty much consistent and nowadays we have 140 subscribers um, who get them posted out all throughout the season and they go all over the world as well to say Norway and Canada USA, Australia. So, yeah, I think the good thing is that contributors get it. They understand what a fanzine is supposed to be. So there's a lot of satirical stuff in there, bits of humour, and that balances well with the more serious, considered articles, which are also great. So generally, yeah, it's it's been going all right. And uh, one big target was, of course, to drag it up to issue 100, and that's where we are now. So in in your um, tenure as editor, what's the, I don't know, the, the funniest, strangest or weirdest thing to have happened to you during that time? Selling fanzines outside football grounds was quite a novel thing for me. I've done nothing like that in my life before, and I've come to quite enjoy that, particularly when people are so nice coming up and pleased to pick up the copy um I've, I've tried to sell it a few away games and generally they're okay about that the the authorities like at Wigan and Berry, you know stewards have asked and they've been okay but then I got told off at Northampton town a, an angry woman came out and said oh you, you can't sell anything on, on our on our ground go go away that was one funny incident occasionally at he would, there might be a comment, like when I was, you know, walking through the turnstile with a few fanzines under my arm, someone said, is that promotional material? And, um, well... Insert your own punchline here, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, yeah. There was, there was no promotion, mention of promotion in there at all. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think, as you well know, being part of a fan group, like I suppose it is, you, various requests come in from angles you know people asking you to help out yeah you know both professional and amateurs you know helping them out with the website which is generally fine and we enjoy telling tales about how the team's doing or giving a story about chris sutton or whatever one of the strangest was when ones was well apparently michael appleton was touted as being the next manager of hibernian so we're a Scottish journalist was on to me asking about his style of play at the Rovers and everything about him. And it was just one of those very small rumours which didn't come to anything. And two months, two or two hours later, they'd appointed someone else. So, so that you don't get roped into, you know, wasting your time because it is quite a con- time consuming thing. That must have been um, quite a difficult question to answer, though. What was Michael Appleton's style at Rovers? He's hardly uh, here long enough to develop one. Exactly. So I, I couldn't really really say much probably the, the craziest story for the fanzine calls for me was the it was the promotion running um league one promotion running and we were playing p 
Peterborough at home on a Thursday night. If you ah, remember. yes. Yes. It was on it was on Sky, so that's when the final issue of the season was due out and the match was originally due to be on the Saturday but it was brought forward to Thursday for TV. Yeah. And I normally send the issue to the printers on the Monday and it gets delivered on the Thursday, which works quite well with a Saturday match. But this one occasion I had no slack, but I decided to go with it because it had always gone to plan up to that point. Uh-huh. And inevitably you can imagine what's coming next there was a hitch at the printers and there was a one working day delay to production it ended up with me negotiating that if I could pick them up on the Thursday afternoon from Rotherham then if they printed them for them then then it would work out so I had to go from Blackburn to from, go from Blackburn to Rotherham and back again. And then fortunately I was there just in time before the match to, you know, sell the fanzine where, you know, promotion fever was rife at that point. <laughs> fans were, you know, they were, they were there waiting to pick up the fanzine. So it would have been a disaster if I had no fanzines to sell. Um, but it turned out very well in the end. Well, if you ever get that situation again, I'll be delighted to act as an intermediary for you and bring them over from Rotherham. <laughs> but let's hope you don't. Uh, yeah, that's, I think I remember um, bumping into you at Northampton as well in that car park um, behind yeah. the stand. Uh, I didn't think they were they were that uh, unfriendly types there, but you never know. It's strange things, isn't it? People get they get quite proprietorial, I think, about what is uh, what is sold on their premises, and they they get very nervous in case it's. Uh, I don't know, unsuitable literature or, or a particular political bent or something. but yeah. Or maybe they're just worried about people not buying a programme because they bought your fanzine, but there we go. Any road, how pleased are you then that you, you did take it over? Yeah, massively. I think when I went to it, there was a certain degree of naivety on my part in that I thought I could put a good fanzine together. I had some new ideas, but ultimately it's all dependent on the quality of the contributors because that's what the content is. It's a, you know, it's done by the fans as a group effort. And I just have the fun part of putting it all together at the end of the day. And um, yeah, it was just so pleasing that straight away. So many people got in touch and people really understand what the fanzine is supposed to be. And people, you know, sending, you know, great, varied articles um, which makes each issue really really good and I think certainly the last one issue 99 was probably the best one to date which I've been involved in and it's just a case of keeping up that consistency which I'm confident can be done because people you know do keep getting involved and people keep buying it but I think overall the most pleasing thing has been the fact that I've got to know so many new Rovers fans, and that's both the people who've contributed and also people who you meet outside the ground and you get to know familiar faces, people who buy it each issue, and small sections of football fans get a bad name, but it just reinforces that view that 99% of fans are actually really decent people and really nice. So, yeah, connecting with new fans has probably been the most rewarding thing i'd say you write for it as well though you have written the the odd article had you done much writing before i wasn't i I was more of a mathematical type at school but i think as i I, as i grew up i 
became more and more interested in writing and the precursor to me taking on the fanzine was I'd actually done a had a year out from my career to study journalism just as a kind of a, a random new thing to learn because I am fascinated by the world of journalists and while I don't I'm not a journalist currently I, I don't claim to be I do still like putting together articles and I hope to think that I've got a few good Rover's tales to tell and and so obviously that helps to you know fill in the corners when you know when there's a few pages which you need fill in so yeah. a few stories of my own to put in there as well. I think one of the one of the really interesting things, and certainly over the last few issues as well, it seems to be spanning the generations now. There are there are uh, shall we say more senior writers, perhaps like myself, or, and some people even older than me, and then younger ones as well being introduced to the word of, of the, well, the world of a fanzine, so that the paper, the ink, real words on a real page, and I think that's that's one of the great things about uh, about the fanzine. That, what's the hardest part, though, of, of actually editing the magazine and bringing it out, Scott, apart from having to drive over to Rotherham on an unsolicited uh, or an unscheduled <laughs> visit, shall we say? I suppose there's no getting away from it. It is a time-consuming process, and I did think that as each issue went along and I, I learned how to do it and you know learned shortcuts or whatever, there's no getting away from the fact that there is a certain big chunk of time you need to put into putting together the issue and collating it all. But it's enjoyable time. I, I still enjoy putting each issue together and because the contributions are always so good, it, it makes it a pleasurable thing to do. But it does come with sacrifices. So you might realise that, oh, what's that tv series everyone's been talking about oh yeah i haven't had time to watch that or oh i haven't been out cycling for a couple of months and so it's fine i accept it but you know there are sacrifices i'm my own worst enemy at times in that i'm a bit of a perfectionist and so i do spend a lot of time checking and making sure each issue is pretty much as perfect as it can be I know that's not totally the fanzine ethic because fanzines traditionally are a, an amateur kind of cobbled together in someone's bedroom production. So it doesn't matter if they're full of typos. It doesn't matter if there's one page which you can't read or anything like that. But yes. I, I suppose I do take a certain degree of pride in putting something out which is really good. And I, I think no one can argue when they pick it up and they look at it and think, oh, yeah, that 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 looks good, it looks professional, but it still feels like a fanzine and it is that, still that amateur thing. Yeah, I think you, you sent me a copy of um, the Raw Milk fanzine, the Accrington Stanley one, that, the, that you featured in that was talking about the fanzine culture. And that, to me, the production values of that were the equivalent of a matchday magazine at a, a Premier League stadium. I mean, fair play to them and all that, but it, it really did look like a genuine magazine that you pick up at sort of like WH Smiths or something like that. I think it, it's a hard balance to strike, and I think you've certainly managed to do that with 4,000 holes. Yeah, certainly. I think, um, yeah, I get a lot of the other, we, we swap a lot of fanzines with, um, you know, all, all across the country to like, you know, bounce ideas off each other. And most of the fanzines are that kind of glossy thing. And ones like United We Stand and The Gooner, which are 
they are practically professional yeah. productions, like yeah. big glossy magazines and five pounds to purchase the, the Arsenal one. So wow. that kind of goes away from being a proper fanzine. It's a difficult. It is a difficult balance, but I, I like to think at one pound fifty, four thousand dollars, you are getting great value for money. So, Scott, what's the most rewarding thing that you've done with four thousand holes? Uh, I think it's something which actually started way back in the early nineties when the the creators got it going. In that they didn't know how successful it would be and in the heyday they were selling almost a thousand copies so wow in addition to various advertisers they had it meant financially it was very secure and they ended up having lots of money left over at the end of the season and at one stage they spent it on a big away day at Plymouth but then realized that the best thing to do with with any leftover money would be to donate it to charity. Um, so almost from the off, any extra money was donated to local charities. But also they used to go into the club shop at the end of the season and buy scarves and memorabilia and then hand them out to kids around oh, the ground. Right. Do you know, so, I never, I never realised they did that. Yeah, so it was kind of giving something back into the club because some money was going into the club and also promoting Blackburn Rovers in terms of, you know, you know, indoctrinating kids into Blackburn Rovers. Quite right too, yes. Uh, so a similar thing has kind of happened with me in that I didn't know how big the take-up would be, but financially it is secure in that the number of copies sold, you know, far outweighs the outgoing costs of printing and other costs. Um, so any leftover money, I do try to give to local charities and say, if one of the subscribers or contributors is, you know, running a marathon or whatever, I'll chip in a £10 or a £20 here. On one occasion, I ran a um, competition on Facebook for um, a rose cushion, which I actually purchased from the Terrace Store. The Terrace are, Store, you say? Why? <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, are the podcast sponsors. They are indeed. So some fine range of merchandise, ladies and gentlemen. And if you use the checkout code BRFCS, you'll gain yourselves an exclusive 10% discount. Thanks for mentioning that, Scott. <laughs> yeah, so I would got this cushion using the, the code um, to run a competition. So I ran it on Facebook and it turned out the winner was actually from Bavaria. And I was like, oh, I've got to send this to southern Germany. And then I started to put the pieces together and realised this guy, Chris Cummins, goes by the name of Bavarian Rovers on, on Twitter. Media. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. On, the, on the forum as well, yes. Yeah. You, and I then, think I remember seeing that now on your Twitter feed. Yeah, and then eventually I worked out, I'd actually met him before, so I'd gone to the 2011 Women's World Cup to watch an England game against Japan in Augsburg, and after the match outside the ground, I saw someone in a rover shirt and it's one of those things i think, think we've all done where you're in a far away place and you see a rover shirt and you think i've got to go to speak to that person absolutely and so, um, i spoke to this person for say just five to ten minutes walking away from the ground and then that was it until i worked out that it's bavarian rovers so it's that connection to people which i mentioned before which has been a pleasing thing about being involved again has 
come around in a completely different way in that I've, I've reconnected with a person in that way. That's fantastic. I can, to that point about seeing a Rover shirt, I can, I can remember now being on holiday in Malta one year and there was um, some kind of, uh, well, there's always a Saints Day in Malta. They, they celebrate so many of them. There's usually, there's usually one. But we're wandering down the main street in Valletta and I could see this this character in what looked like a jester's outfit, but it was blue and white halves. And I said, I've got to investigate this. This is, a, this is a bit unusual. And sure enough, they were wearing, I think, like Umbro team wear. But the, yeah. the saint for that quarter in Valletta, the, the, the colours were blue and white. So there was a procession about to start. And these guys were running down the street ahead of the procession, sort of like waving flags and ringing bells and all that sort of stuff. But they were, <laughs> they were wearing <laughs> rover shirts in reality. So I, thought, I remember taking loads of photos. I didn't know whether to feel a bit of a fool for somebody running after them and getting really excited because I'd seen blue and white halves. But uh, yes, I can relate to that. I can absolutely relate to that. And we have got this series in the fanzine running called All Over the World. And in the of last course. issue, there was an excellent article by Xander Bertwistle talking about when he was teaching in Zambia. And he got caught up in this political rally because it was a politically tense time. Uh-huh. But he'd been noticed this rover shirt in the middle of this rally. So he sprinted through, barged past people and spoke <laughs> to this, this Zambian fan. So he tells that tale in the latest issue, which um, is just a great tale and, again, reinforces that point yeah. we just discussed. That sense of community. Never mind the fact there's a military coup going on. Yeah. You've got a rover shirt on. <laughs> That's fab- fabulous stuff. So uh, with all the submissions that you received and all the uh, the contributors' pieces that have been sent to you, um, what have you received but you couldn't publish for whatever reason, be it good taste or in case you alerted the libel lawyers? Everyone who submits stuff is sensible and they don't step over any stupid line, so they, they keep it relevant and accurate and don't slip in into, into any libelous territory, anything overly offensive. Obviously, a fanzine has to be edgy at times, but I think people know where to stop stop it. And where to draw the where, line. Yeah, where the boundary is. I think one of the, the, the strangest submissions was, it was a cover, an album cover from the Black and White Minstrels by... Oh, cracking. And, by Andy Cole, who was one of the black and white minstrels. Oh, gen- genuinely, so one of the minstrels called Andy Cole. Yeah. <laughs> so I must stress <laughs> wow. that this wasn't submitted with any <laughs> ill will. It simply came with a comment saying, I'm not sure how we could use this, if at all. And so, yeah, it, it took about 10 seconds to think. I think we'll just leave the black and white yes, minstrel yes. in the 1970s where they belong. Where they belong. I, I'd, ne- I'd never heard of them, to be honest. And I asked my mum, oh, who, who, who were they? And she says, oh, yeah, we used to love that in the 1970s. So You're making uh, me feel very old now, Scott, you see, because at about sort of like 7 or 7.30 on a Saturday night, that will be the, the earliest light entertainment show that will come on. It's um, yes, as you say, probably best left to one side. And uh, but you've not had any uh, correspondence from uh, lawyers of certain agents, no cease and desist letters like we've had at PRFCS. 
No, nothing like that. Although, you know, bring it on. I'm all for a bit of uh, <laughs> fun and to see what happens. Well, you, you say that, yeah, as long as you've got good personal indemnity insurance. <laughs> What's lined up for issue 100, Scott, then? Any special items, any teasers that you can sort of like uh, dangle out there? Yeah, it's a brilliant edition. Um, I've put more time into this than any before because I do want to make it a memorable edition to celebrate what is a great achievement because a lot of people have put a lot of time into it over 30 years and to get to 100 issues is just quite remarkable for an amateur production so issue 100 will celebrate its history and I've done a lot of detective work and managed to track down every single front cover and basically put them all on display in the issue. Fantastic. And, um, so it's almost like a history of the Rovers yeah, yeah, of yeah. 30 years. Um, it's been difficult because there was a strange era in the late 90s where none of them had issue numbers on. Um, <laughs> so cataloging them was an absolute nightmare. So fortunately, my late 90s knowledge is pretty good. So piecing it all together based on what was inside each one and the topical stories. It was quite fun, actually, in the end. I quite enjoyed doing that. And there was a scary moment where I thought, it might not be issue 100. There's an issue missing somewhere. <laughs> because just purely because that counting wasn't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I'm I'm 99.9% sure that this is actually issue 100. Um so what else is in there? We've got, well, I've managed to track down pretty much all of the people who started it up in the late 80s. Um, some of them didn't want to be included in the issue. That's fine. They put their time in and want to take a back seat now. Um, but I'm glad to say I sat down with Brendan Searson, who's probably the longest serving member of the 4000 Holes team. He was one of the co-creators and was involved for pretty much 20 years until he passed it over to Dan Clough. So yeah, so there's a great Q&A with him talking about those early days and, you know, some of the special memories he has and, you know, problems he faced along the way. Great stuff. Um, and various stories have come out through me trying to track down the history. Um, so just as a few snippets of things over the years so there was of course the thatch card which was um i do remember that yeah which was a free gift in one of the early editions it was indeed it was the time when id cards were possibly coming coming into football and obviously margaret thatcher was was the uh, vice president yeah <laughs> do, you, do you have you managed to get hold of a copy of a thatch card i've got an image of one you've got the image yeah yeah the actual um but Brendan also played me the 4,000 Holes single, which was released. Um, Flying. Called Flying. Yes, yes I remember right. that as well. Which, um, <laughs> which referenced the uh, the famous banner over... Um, over Turf Moor. And over Burnley, yeah. Um, maybe the highlight of 4,000 Holes is this spoof story, which was in one of the fanzines, which... 
ended up in the hands of Blackburn Council and they were duped into believing it was true. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> That's a really good story, which is in there. Um, so you'll have to pick up a copy. To oh, it. very much so. Yeah, that sounds really good. I know the, the, there's an American satirical magazine called The Onion, which I think is their equivalent, probably Private Eye or something like that. And I think lazy journalists are on a quiet news day. Uh, yeah. They can be easily fooled with stories that are in the onion and they run with them, <laughs> believing them to be genuine. And there was that thing last week, wasn't there, where the Daily Express printed a copy of um, the, a blue passport, as it will be post-Brexit, and they, they'd taken it from a tweet from the Monty Python Twitter account. All right, OK. <laughs> so, so the royal crest in the middle, have said instead of it saying, Oniswaki Mali Pons, it said your mother smells of... Uh, your father was a hamster and your mother smells of elderberries from the um, being Monty Python, the Holy Grail. And I think that was up on the website of the Express for, for about three days. Well, well yeah, to, to kind of keep up with the 4,000-old brand, I, I do try to tweet out kind of jokey, you know, sarcastic things, which some people might believe and might not believe. Um, <laughs> so it's all, it's all good fun in the end. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to reading that one in particular. So um, issue 100, that's terrific. You said that was your ambition to get there. But what's next then? What are your unfulfilled ambitions? Where does the magazine go from here? Yeah, I suppose it's difficult to say now because it'd be stupid to say, oh, let's aim for issue A thousand. 200. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, as has been the case right from the side, I can only take one issue at a time. At the moment, I'm still really enjoying putting it together. It's, it is rewarding and I'm glad to be doing it. Where could I go? It could become bigger, sell more copies. Yeah, but I think you've got to be realistic and accept that we are living in a paperless society or at least an increasingly paperless society. I'm happy with the number of people who read it and there's nothing wrong staying a cult classic, not bestseller, um, to, to quote niche. the fruits. <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, niche. I think so, it's, it's interesting though with, with, with the, the whole fanzine because there will be a whole generation that's grown up probably not appreciating at all what a fanzine is. And dare I say it, some of our very younger supporters <laughs> will probably still look at programs and think, well, what on earth are they for? You know, I can I can look it up on a website on my phone. What what on earth is that all about? But there's something I don't know, there is something rewarding about the paper, about being able to fold it up and put it in your pocket and carry it around with you and all that sort of good stuff. And whilst you know, a Kindle has its place, I think there's there's still a place for a, a magazine, and that gives it its USP. It's something a little bit different. I suppose it's it's like the reading equivalent of vinyl, isn't it? The vinyl yeah, yeah. is having something of a, um, a renaissance. There are, there are people that are of my age that are revisiting their stacked Hi-Fi systems, and so they're amazing their nephews, nieces, children, and grandchildren are saying, what's this circular thing that's spinning round, and why are you dropping a needle on it? So maybe 4,000 holes can do that but i don't know maybe at some point in the future it could be accompanied by a four thousand holes app scott I, i'm very much a traditionalist in that i like i like the programs i like the fact that of a hard copy fanzine and i don't know moving towards any app or anything like that i, I don't know how anything like that would particularly work and i don't know we'll, we'll see but for the minute a hard copy fanzine is sustainable and yeah, just take one issue at a time, I think. The app should just be a page where it has your email address and send contributions here. 
Yeah. It should be like the, the most stripped down, <laughs> the, bare, the barest application possible. So I suppose the, the final and obvious question then is, I know Kidder Street is, has been renamed Scott's Corner, and people will be able to buy the magazine when? Uh, so there's actually four home games in February, so it will be available on Kidder Street um, before every home match, but will first be on sale at the Fulham match, which obviously will be the the big day when it'll be heaving and um, I'll hopefully have enough issues to, to hand out to everyone. Fantastic. And if, if somebody who's listening to this uh, can't get down to the ground or is uh, is one of your uh, your overseas fans and they want to buy issue 100 on its own, if they're not a subscriber, how would they go about that? Yeah, so there's um, a website. Um, it's got a, a funny address, actually, but if you go through our social media accounts, um there will be links posted to it so you can buy it online but if you, if you want to join the mailing list just email roversfanzine at gmail.com but yeah the, the link to buy it online and on ebay are in the usual place on brfcs.com and on twitter facebook etc so yeah there will be copies available to buy online as well fantastic i'm sure you'll tweet them out again near the time and we will retweet it as well and we can put something in the thread on our site when we drop this uh, this episode as well. Scott, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's been fantastic, uh, well, contributing and reading 4,000 Holes over the full 30 years. I don't think I got issue one. I think it, I came in at issue two. It was probably the first time I saw it on sale. So maybe if you can dig out a copy of issue one and send me a photocopy or something, then I can at least no, say I'll be happy to do I've, I've read every yeah, I've read every issue so, uh, that's been published. I think it's terrific that the, the fanzine has uh, has been rekindled, and it's all down to your efforts. I think you, you've stuck at it uh, tenaciously, and you're a friend of the podcast as well. So what more is there to ask? So thanks once again for your time, Scott. It's much appreciated, and good luck with issue one hundred. And we look forward to uh, at least what another hundred after that. Thanks very much, Ian. Cheers. You're welcome. Thanks, Scott. And now here's John Waring with his earliest Rovers memories. Hi, this is John Waring. Age 67 and Rovers fan for at least 60 years of those. I was born in Rufford near Ormskirk. My dad a local farmer and my mum a mill girl from Bamber Bridge. We lived in the country and at that time never strayed very far from where we lived. We used to go on the train with mum to see her mum and dad most weeks but never went very far. I was keen on football and so was my dad but he loved playing. As a farmer never had any spare time beyond playing a game on a Saturday. I was too young to tell but I'm told he was an excellent footballer who turned down playing for Liverpool twice. That sounds an astounding decision these days but this was during the war. He would have been 14 in 1939. There was a maximum wage, which then would probably have been less than he would get on the family farm, and also signing later on during the war would have meant he would immediately have been conscripted. My mum's family were Rovers fans. Living on the Chorley side of the level crossing on Station Road in Bamber Bridge, they all were. The other side was North End, and though in those days any football fan would often go to other games as well. My granddad and uncle would often go to Deepdale when Rovers were away, just to watch Tom Finney. My first memory as a Rovers fan was when we moved house in May 1960. It was actually on the day of the cup final. I vividly remember everything stopping in the moving front whilst we watched the match. Sometime a few years later, when I was around 9 or 10, I was given the chance to be taken to Ewood by my uncle, who had a Spurs season ticket for me that game. 
I remember going over after school one Friday night, presumably on the train, to stay with my uncle and auntie. This was not only the first time I'd stayed anywhere other than home, or away from my parents, but also the first time I'd slept anywhere with streetlights and I couldn't sleep. Probably a combination of the lights and the excitement. I spent all Saturday morning waiting for my uncle to come back from work at Leyland Motors, which seemed like an age. Then off on the BBMS bus, special bus to Ewood. We sat up in the old Riverside stand. My recollection is that we played Sheffield United and won 3-1, but that match actually doesn't exist, so I've either got the score or the team we played wrong in my head, but nevertheless I'm pretty confident we won. This led to me being a Rovers fan, which is a challenge when I went to grammar school in Ormskirk in 1964, as everyone else supported Liverpool or Everton. I remember a new lad starting a couple of years later, who had moved from London and was a Charlton fan. Some years after that, we both went down to the valley to see Rovers play out a nil-nil draw, which put, nevertheless put us top of the old second division table. That was the 18th of October 1969. I can remember standing on the huge side terrace that used to be at the valley, and made it one of the biggest grounds in the country at the time. It held 75,000, though there were apparently only 11,560 hardy souls there that day. By that time I was a regular at home games, being old enough to make my own way to Ewood. That required me working on the farm on Saturday morning, cycling two miles to the station in Rufford to get a train to Preston, and then to Mill Hill to get to home games. Thanks very much there to Scott for sharing all the latest news about 4,000 holes and its 100th episode. Big thanks also to John Waring, first-time contributor to the podcast with his earliest Rovers memories. And, of course, as always, our thanks go out to the boys in the Cemetery Band for all the music used in this episode. We'll be back soon, and in our next episode you'll hear from Rich Sharp of the Lancashire Telegraph, and he'll be telling us all about events in the transfer window. And that's one of my favourite quotes I just sent you. Colour my life with the chaos of trouble, because in, in a year we'll we'll laugh about this. <laughs> well, I'm hoping in a few weeks we will, to be truthful. Yeah. Right, I'm, de- I'm definitely recording. I mean, it was recording before, it's just that I didn't have the right options on. Better than harsh isolation I miss the fun